now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the union labels. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome, everyone, to the Alan Nathan Show, where we want the Republicans out of our bedrooms, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today. The president of Brazil is in China. His name is Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, and he is the left-wing successor to Jair Bolsonaro, who lost a narrow re-election race for the Brazilian presidency. So Lula, as he is usually called, is the president of Brazil, now big left-wing guy. So he's off to the communist stronghold in China for meetings with them. And while he's in China, he has issued a call, and he is not the first one to do this, just adding his voice to the chorus, for the American dollar to be dethroned as the medium of international commerce. He said while he was in China, every night I ask myself why all countries have to base their trade on the dollar. And uh, his conclusion was that they don't. He said, why can't we do trade based on our own currencies? Who was it that decided the dollar was the currency after the disappearance of the gold standard? Well, the short answer to that is Saudi Arabia and Richard Nixon. It's a longer story to that, but if you, if you really want the uh, brief answer to his question, that was who decided that. It was back in the 1970s. Uh, but this, this is bad news. Uh, Brazil is part of an organization called BRICS, which is a coalition of nations that includes China and also Russia, India, and South Africa, and they're looking to expand. They're an economic cooperative, and as you might guess from looking at that uh, guest list, that list of members, not really uh, over overall very friendly to the United States. India sort of is. Uh, the rest of them, uh, China, Russia, not not really people that, that have our best interests at heart. So BRICS is a significant organization. It has some influence. And if they are successful in dethroning the dollar as the medium of international currency, especially for oil, which is that's how it got that way. That's why Saudi Arabia had a lot to, to do with this back in the 70s. The dollar became the standard way of resolving international oil purchases. And from there, it became the medium of international currency. China really, really, really wants to dethrone the dollar. This is a huge, huge policy item for China. It has been for a long time. They've been plotting and scheming to do this for decades now. And uh, sorry to say, but they got quite a few people in the United States going back to the Clinton administration to go along with them. This, this whole globalist crusade has been very useful for China in its quest to eliminate the special status accorded to the dollar. Big policy agenda item for them. Russia would like to get rid of the dollar. Uh, they w- they've wanted that for a while now to dethrone the dollar as the king of international currency, but they want it a lot more now. And one of the reasons why is because uh, Joe Biden was running around saying that we're going to devalue the Russian currency and that's how we're going to destroy them. Back when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, uh, the Biden's administration's big idea was we're going to have sanctions on Russia. And one of the primary objectives was to crash the Russian currency so that they would have to give up. Their whole economy would come down and they would stop fighting in Ukraine because they wouldn't be able to afford to anymore. And uh, instead, Russia is doing pretty well overall financially. There have been some impact of the sanctions in some areas, but they've made up a lot of lost ground with oil sales. And overall, their economy is not doing so badly as we might have hoped. And they would like to get rid of the dollar special status to, to get back at us, you know, to do unto us what uh, we tried to do unto them. That's going to be a very bad thing. And I have to say, there it's a complicated topic. There are a lot of different opinions on what will happen if the dollar loses its special status around the world as a medium of international currency. There are some people who think, uh, there's nobody who thinks it would be a good thing. Let me start by saying that. There are some analysts who think it would be bad, but we could handle it. It would hurt us in various ways. It would depend on where our, our economy was at. 
at that moment. And uh, if you look out the window at Joe Biden's America, this is not a good time. <laughs> this is the last time in the world we would need to have something like this happen to us would be while Joe Biden was in the White House and inflation is spiraling out of control. He made all out war on the American energy industry, basically crushed it. He's smothering the economy with regulations. He's about to try to choke gas powered vehicles out of existence. He's trying to promulgate these new rules that will basically wipe out the internal combustion engine and you'll be forced to buy a $100,000 electric car if you want to have a car. I mean, this is the kind of thing that he's doing to America. That is not an economy that would survive a, a blow uh, with, with from losing the dollar special status and we'd all just have a laugh about it. That, that would be a bad thing in the kind of shape we're in. And there are some analysts who think that even if our economy was in very good shape at the moment it happened, that it would still be devastating to us to have the dollar be replaced by other currencies in international trade. Because one of the reasons our government has been able to rack up such unimaginable levels of debt is because of the dollar special status, because everybody wants dollars. It's the hottest selling item in the commodity market, in the currency market. Everybody buys dollars and they use dollars to handle their other international transactions. And that has given us a lot of room to run up the national credit card. And if you've checked lately, it's at numbers that the human mind can barely comprehend, and it's skyrocketing ever faster beyond the bounds of reason. There is literally not enough money in the world to pay off the U.S. national debt. That's... Uh, that seems like a problem, doesn't it? There's no way if the entire human race all got together and said, hey, America, we're going to do you guys a solid. We're going to clear out your national debt because we love you, pal. They couldn't do it. Not if every country in the world joined forces to erase our national debt. It's that huge. It's it's incomprehensible. Some of it is almost theoretical at this point. The people that hold that debt in various ways know that they'll never be fully repaid, but they've got interest and other benefits accruing from it. Financial institutions profit from it. If the dollar is no longer special and the world no longer has quite such a voracious demand to get American dollars for use in their transactions, then we that's bad news. That that could really bring the whole house of cards tumbling down. The worst case scenario is that once the demand for the dollar is greatly reduced or largely eliminated around the world, we can't monetize our debt anymore and God knows what happens next. You know, it's, it's almost impossible to predict what would actually happen. So this is not a good thing to have this BRICS cooperative and to have the Brazilian president who is in China because he wants to be best buddies with China. He wants them to be his patron. South America, Latin America, China China wants to realign all of those countries away from the United States and move them into China's orbit. They're making a big play for that. It, they're having some success, as you can see, from the left-wing president of Brazil being over there to schmooze with the Chinese dictator. So th this, the forces are moving into place to actually make this happen. And another place that we're having a lot of pro problems is Africa. One of the BRICS nations is South Africa. And Africa as a continent has become a power play between the United States, Russia, and China. We each, the Western world, really, the U.S. is the leader of it, has allies and interests in Africa. So do China. So, so do Russia. And there's a, a bit of a power struggle going on. And we're not winning that power struggle. I have to, I hate to tell you this, but, uh, and Africa is important. There's, there's a lot going on in Africa that can have ramifications for the world for years to come. A lot of human beings live there. We should care about their futures. Of course, we're compassionate people, but they also have resources. They have economic strength. Africa is not to be ignored on the great uh, game board of the world. And the Chinese and Russians are making a lot of progress, winning African nations away from the U.S. orbit. And recently the vice president, Kamal Harris, went to Africa and she announced billions of dollars in new spending programs, none of which was really intended to win anybody over. This was defensive. This was just to keep the African allies we have from bolting. And we're just going to ladle out billions of dollars in development aid and programs and everything just to keep them on board because they're getting offers from Russia and China to break with the U.S., and they're seriously considering those offers. And uh, one of the reasons that this is not going well for us is that Russia and China have a different relationship with their client states, especially China. If you sign up to be on Team China, part of the deal is that they don't hassle you about human rights. They couldn't care less about human rights. They take slaves. They, they don't care about human rights. So if you become one of China's client states, they are never going to question or challenge what your regime does to retain power. 
If you need to abuse your people, throw them in jails, build concentration camps, maybe you've got an inconvenient ethnic minority that you'd like to wipe out, a tribe that's giving you problems, your friends in Beijing are never going to hassle you about whatever you have to do to take care of that. They're going to say that's your internal business. And as long as you give China what it wants and you sign deals and they get the raw materials, the resources, they're ravenous for rare earths, for copper, for minerals, for oil. If, if they get what they want out of you, uh, they could care less what you do to your people. That's They're never going to give you a hard time or sanction you for human rights. Now, if you are, on the other hand, dealing with the Americans, then along comes Kamala Harris or Secretary of State Anthony Blinken goes over there and let's say you're Uganda and we're trying to keep you in the American orbit. And the first thing they're going to do when they sit down is say, uh, how about gay rights? Uh, you guys don't have enough gay rights. You need to have drag queen story hours in your schools. You need to have gay rights. And a lot of Africa is not fond of gay rights. About half of Africa actually, frankly, outlaws homosexual activity. Uganda is, is famous because they were trying to pass a much tougher law than ever before against that. So we're making conditions, cultural demands, human rights demands on them that they don't want to live up to. And under that kind of pressure, they're gravitating more towards non-judgmental China and Russia who just want to do business with them. And that is building the pressure around the world to dethrone the dollar. The stage is being set for a fight we might not want to have in the economic sphere. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. Spring is here. Time to get out of the gym and take your workout outdoors. Whether you're walking, running, swimming, or biking, it's important to have a proper warm-up routine to prevent injuries. Five-time Ironman triathlon world champion Craig Crowey-Alexander has some advice. Sprains, strains, and injuries can happen to any athlete. Even a minor injury can affect your performance and derail your fitness routine. One of the best ways to try and prevent injuries is to make sure you prepare properly. Alexander recommends always starting with a 10 to 15 minute dynamic warm-up. Activation exercises combined with some dynamic movements like lunges are great for warming up. Focus on one specific movement at a time until you feel ready to go. Be sure to listen to your body and use proper support gear when needed to protect yourself and prevent injury. The Curad Performance Series Ironman lineup includes rugged supports, wraps, kinesiology tape, bandages, and analgesics to support you on your fitness journey. For more, go to curad.com. This is sponsored by IBM. Job seekers, students, and career changers want to pursue roles in science, technology, engineering, and math, but aren't familiar with career options. At the same time, online training and digital credentials are emerging as a recognized pathway to opportunity. Misconceptions about the cost of training and what's required are often roadblocks to success. To tackle this and bring STEM education closer to underrepresented communities, IBM Skills Build is announcing 45 new educational partners. IBM Skills Build is a free education program focused on underrepresented communities in tech, helping all develop valuable new skills and access to career opportunities. Justina Nixon St. Till, IBM Chief Impact Officer. Technology training can have a transformational effect on a person's life. IBM is committed to raising awareness of the many roles that exist across industries in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. IBM Skills Build continues to grow with new partners around the world, working together to scale 30 million people by 2030. For more, skillsbuild.org. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jason Derulo. I love that music connects to people all over the country. But unfortunately, so does something else. Childhood hunger. 15 million kids struggle with hunger right here in America. And yet, every year, billions of pounds of surplus food in the U.S. go to waste instead of going to the children in need. Feeding America is working to change this. The Feeding America nationwide network of food banks rescues this surplus of food to help provide meals to families in virtually every community in the United States including yours, but they just can't do this alone. Join me in the fight against hunger in America. For more information on what you can do to get involved, visit feedingamerica.org. That's feedingamerica.org. Together we can solve hunger. Together we're feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. What is dedication? I am the father of a nine-year-old little girl and a six-year-old little boy. And I find fatherhood both relentlessly challenging and relentlessly rewarding. My daughter is biological and my son is adopted. I love them both so much. 
from the morning when you wake up to putting them to bed at night and every moment in between, it really is so special. And boy, is it exhausting. One thing that I fear about being a parent is the future for my children. I think a parent's job is to protect our children, but also prepare them for the world so they become good, kind human beings. But I'm also hopeful that the future holds a more inclusive and compassionate world for them. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Student loans have become something of a political football during the Biden administration. There was President Joe Biden's plan to waive student loan debt, and there is also a battle going on over pandemic-era programs to put a moratorium on student loan payments, and some new lawsuits have been filed that may force a status change on the student loan repayment situation. Here with us to talk about it is Sheng Li, Litigation Counsel for the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Welcome to the show. Thank you, John. This is really interesting. Uh, At first glance, people might think this has to do with the plan to just waive student loans entirely, but it's actually about the moratorium on repaying student loans. And part of this new suit is that that moratorium is hurting people that have significant financial damages because student loan payments have been halted. That's right, John. Uh, and, And to understand this a little bit, it's not just a pause on borrowers' monthly payment obligations. It also pauses the accrual of interest. So anyone familiar with a car loan or a, a house loan may understand that normally what happens is interest accrues on your loans every month or every year. And, but when you halt the accrual of interest, what's going on is the government is actually canceling an amount of loans each month equal to what the interest would accrue. And that amount – you add it all up for the 40 or 50 million borrowers, it's about $5 billion of taxpayer, do- taxpayer dollars every month. And this thing's been going on for 30 months, so that adds up to $150 billion. That is a lot of money. Are, are the plaintiffs in this case people who were profiting from the interest, or is there another uh, interest they have in this? The plaintiff is the Mackinac Center. It's a public service employer. So there's a pre-existing program that Congress approved where – student loan borrowers can get all of their loans forgiven if they work for a public service employer and pay their loans for 10 years. So this, this incentivizes college-educated students to work for nonprofits like the Mackinac Center by dangling the promise of their loans being forgiven. But if their loans are already being forgiven at the tune of $5 billion a month through this other unlawful program, that incentive to work for a nonprofit becomes much smaller and then the nonprofit loses the competitive advantage conferred by the congressional program, the congressionally approved program. Now, see, this is so confusing because I was told that only fat cat bankers with huge amounts of money were profiting off of student loans and that that was the only reason to oppose waiving or, or delaying student loan payments because you were evil and greedy and you were siphoning money away from students. I wasn't told there was anybody else that would be hurt by this plan. No. Right. Not at all. I mean, this, this congressionally approved public service forgiveness plan is meant to help uh, nonprofit employers, small governments, city government employers who can't compete, who can't afford to compete with the high salaries of Wall Street or, or the oil and gas industry. So what Congress said is great. Maybe they offer lower pay. But if you work for them for 10 years, you get all your loans forgiven. And, and that encourages college educated people to take nonprofit careers which I think many people would applaud. Uh, but if you then say, never mind, your loans are forgiven anyway, uh, then, then that incentive that to encourage uh, college-educated borrowers to take nonprofit jobs simply evaporates. Now, how is the Biden administration responding to this suit? Do they agree with this argument, or are they fighting it? They are, they are fighting it uh, tooth and nail in, in this argument, in, in this lawsuit, and in previous lawsuits concerning uh, student loans. They're, they're very set on uh, having the, the power, having exercising the unlawful power of doing whatever they want with student loans, including forgiving them uh, one, one giant chunk at a time, forgiving it you know, a little chunk at a time through, through the cancellation of interest, uh, of not requiring people to pay it at all. This, month, this, this repayment moratorium uh, has been going on for what, two and a half, three years now, 
and uh, during which no one has paid a dime. How can they say that a program like this should remain in place? It's a pandemic-era emergency program, and the pandemic's over. How could they want to keep it in place? What's the rationale there? Well, it, yes, it is a pandemic uh, program. And in fact, Congress, at the outside of the pandemic in March 2020, Congress actually implemented this exact program. But Congress said only six months. Uh, and then when that expired, there was no further justification for it. And uh, both President Trump and then President Biden both extended the program unlawfully. And they've actually, it's really funny because they, they've, uh, uh, they've both actually uh, proffered a bunch of different justifications. They say, first of all, Trump uh, said, well, there's economic hardship. But economic hardship doesn't apply to every one of the 50 million borrowers. Some of them are very well off. Uh, maybe you can craft a narrow program just to target the, the really, you know, really down on their luck folks. Uh, but that's not what's going on. Everybody gets it, whether you're a, a pauper or a millionaire. Uh, then Biden tied it uh, to the pandemic, but now we see the pandemic is over. And, and what I kind of tell people is if, if someone comes to you with an explanation of what, what's going on, what, why they did is something, and then their explanation keeps on shifting and changing, we know not to trust them. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's that when the Department of Education keeps on shifting its explanations for why, for, for why they're doing this, those explanations aren't aren't the truth. What they're really doing is just giving a, a fat a giveaway to uh, a favored class of people that is college educated sort of well to do elites. That, and that's the thing. I would gather that some of the people involved here have graduated uh, over this period of time, and they may now have moved on into very well-paying jobs, and they're still benefiting from this program. It just doesn't make any sense. It's not mean tested in any way. For sure, it's it's at least uh, uh, at least the the, the Four hundred billion dollar giveaway had an had a uh, an income threshold of one hundred twenty five thousand uh, for purse for an individual and two hundred fifty for a uh, for a uh, uh, a household and you might think that's way too high but but here the, the pause affects everybody you could be making a million dollars two million dollars a year and you don't have to pay off your student loans whereas uh, you know someone else who who took out a car loan or a house loan maybe a business loan just who didn't go to college and took out a business loan to start a small business they have to pay their loans what where's the fairness in that and and also it seems like it's going to harm the people benefiting from it because they don't know when this is going to end and when it does it's going to hit them pretty hard they're going to suddenly be on the hook for these payments i assume nobody's going to try to collect the back interest on them right they're just going to start making the payments again and start paying interest at that time that's right. I think it'll be, you know, I think it'd be really hard to go back and try to calculate what everyone should have owed. But everyone's, you know, for three years, nobody has to pay this. You, you budgeted, you made a budget for your rent and housing and, and food and whatever uh, based on not having to pay this. And suddenly having to pay hundreds of dollars a month, it's going to it's going to be a problem because they haven't no one has planned for this. And, and what's more, it's, it's by having the Department of Education make these determinations, it creates a kind of a seesaw effect where, you know, if a Democrat's in the office, then then you might get some debt relief. But if a Republican's in the office, then maybe you don't. And, and, and but students, when they go to college and decide and try to make a really hard determination of figuring out whether it's worth it to take out a big loan, they have to have some certainty in the future. But they, they can't do that if they don't know, um, you know, who's going to be in the White House to determine whether they have to pay their loan back or not based on, you know, unpredictable electoral outcomes. I'm shocked to hear you say that this might be politically weaponized. Shocked, I tell you. They are our friends in the Democratic Party would never do such a thing, would they? No, I, 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 <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's uh, it's not. Uh, I don't think it's lost on anyone that the first extension uh, of this under Trump actually came right before the 2020 election, and and Biden's uh, one of the extensions and Biden's other policy came right before the 2022 election. That's one of the things that's always bothered me about student loans, and it's been getting worse and ridiculous how much money they have to take out, how expensive tuition is, but it's creating this mountain of debt hanging over people's heads. And as we can see, that mountain of debt can be used to manipulate people, it can be used to manipulate their votes, buy their votes, intimidate and frighten them. It's a horrible mess. Sheng Li, Litigation Counsel for the New Civil Liberties Alliance, thank you for joining us. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. 
From NAACP Image Award-nominated author Elise Bryant comes a new rom-com about two teens who overcome misconnections and find their way to love. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling follows two people who seemingly have nothing in common, but after a year of chance encounters, begin to think the universe may be telling them something. Dungeons and Dragons-obsessed Reggie and emotionally bottled-up Delilah meet for the first time on New Year's Eve and again on Valentine's Day and on random occasions throughout the year. They're drawn to each other, though they are each too insecure to be their true selves. So what happens once they realize they've each fallen for a version of the other that doesn't really exist? Author Elise Bryant. This is a sweet and funny romantic story in which the characters learn to overcome their fears and discover who they truly are. I hope readers enjoy going along in this ride with Reggie and Delilah and maybe learn something about themselves along the way. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling is now available wherever books are sold. Spring is here, and there's no better time to try something new. Take a taste of Coke Zero Sugar and enjoy real Coke taste and zero sugar. Now available at participating Burger King restaurants. Try Coke Zero Sugar with your favorite food from Burger King. Satisfy your hunger and enjoy Coke Zero Sugar with a piping hot breakfast sandwich, like a sausage, egg, and cheese croissant. Sizzling sausage, fluffy eggs, and melted American cheese on a toasted croissant makes for a delicious breakfast to start your morning right. And don't forget the crispy hash browns. Or if the flame-grilled Whopper sandwich, BK Royal crispy chicken sandwich, or chicken fries are your fave, you are in luck. All Burger King menu items pair perfectly with an ice-cold Coke Zero Sugar. It's the perfect no-sugar sparkling beverage that goes great with everything. Take a taste of Coke Zero Sugar to enjoy spring your way at Burger King, where you rule. At participating U.S. Burger King restaurants. Sponsored by Coca-Cola. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed, underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools... Suddenly, everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Allen. Well, the Republican House is getting ready to make good on its campaign promises to do something about border security. After months of delays, it seems like the legislation is finally going to be at hand, and some of the proposals include enhanced funding for the Border Patrol, more agents, more physical barriers, building the wall at long last, reinstituting the Remain in Mexico policy, which would have people wait in Mexico while asylum asylum claims in the United States are processed, and various other measures. None of this is going to appeal in the slightest to the Democratic Party or to President Joe Biden, so it's going to be an uphill battle getting anything passed. Uh, But President Biden wants to spend more money on getting people into the country faster. So pretty much the opposite of the Republican agenda for border security. Here with us to look at the proposals and their possible future is Chris Shimolinsky, Vice President at Numbers USA. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Well, you couldn't have a bigger difference of visions here. You've got the Republicans. They promised during the campaign they would take the border seriously. They would secure it. Uh, President Biden obviously is not going to do that. He couldn't care less about border security. He wants them open. He wants people in here. And his proposal is more money to get more people in faster. So night and day. And President Biden has the veto pen. So what's going to happen here? Yeah, yeah. I I think you, you spelled it out pretty pretty well um it's it's two differing approaches one is to discourage people from coming to the country illegally and the other one is uh welcoming with opening with open arms people who are coming to the country illegally so you know the republicans have done a lot of talking not a whole lot of action yet but it looks like that's going to change next week um we're looking at a legislative package of we think it'll be about eight bills they haven't they haven't made the full announcement. That's just what's been reported so far. Uh, and, and, you know, I think it'll, it, it should get through the, the Judiciary Committee in the House, which is where the, this whole thing will start. I think it shouldn't have too much of an issue getting through there. Um, and then once you get to the floor, then it gets a little bit more iffy because not even all Republicans on board are on board. For example, Representative Tony Gonzalez of, of, of Texas has expressed some concern over at least one or two of the bills. Um, and, and then, yeah, I think, you know, it's a, it's a long haul in the Senate. It's going to be a challenge there. Um, but if, if Republicans need to do something to try to at least put the pressure on Democrats, uh, and then they'll have to explain to their voters next year if they do do nothing, why they did nothing. Well, this does not seem like a campaign promise they were chomping at the bit to fulfill, and we've been here before. We've seen Republicans campaign strongly on border security, urgently, arguably, including President Trump in 2016. And then once they win the election, they're in power. This is not a fight in the legislature that they relish having. And part of it is because I guess they know the odds, especially in this case. They know that Biden's not going to improve anything that would actually make the border more secure. So they feel like they're going to get beat up and the media is going to trash them and call them racist xenophobes and then nothing's actually going to get done anyway. So they, they feel like this is all cost and no benefit to them. Yeah, and there's there's disagreements within the party. Um, you know, we know that there are there are the, the a number of Republicans who are who are cozied up with big business who like the cheap labor that's coming across the border illegally. Uh, so you've got a handful of Republicans that, you know, their approach to, to, to handling the border crisis is, yeah, they want some more border security and some of these measures passed, but they also want it combined with an amnesty. So they have to deal with that, that small faction of the party as well. Um, but, you know, it, it, what you said is, is, is accurate, and I think it's true for both parties. Both parties love the politics of immigration. Neither one of them really wants to do a whole lot about it, though. And they feel like the people that are mostly suffering from this are invisible. We've had demonstrations of that during the great controversy about shipping illegals to Martha's Vineyard and so on. As soon as you actually drop the problem on the doorsteps of the elite, they scream in terror and panic and they faint and they howl to the moon. But as long as they think it's the deplorables down in the border states that suffer from all this, they don't care. Right, exactly. And, you know, that doesn't that that holds true for both parties. You know, go back to to 2008 when Barack Obama first became president of the United States. He had a supermajority in both the House and the Senate. And here's here's an individual who campaigned on comprehensive immigration reform, a.k.a. mass amnesty for everybody that's in the country illegally with promises of enforcement to come later. Uh, And and 
you really didn't do anything with that supermajority. In fact, uh, the Democrats, even while they controlled both the House and the Senate under Obama, really didn't do anything until uh, they were worried about their losses in 2010, needed to motivate voters. So they kind of stirred up the issue just before the, the midterm elections in 2010. So it, you know, it holds true for both parties. They don't they don't have a whole lot of motivation to do anything legislatively. So I'm not surprised that the Republicans, for the most part, have sat on their hands on the issue. They've had a couple of field hearings and other hearings within Congress. They just haven't taken those steps legislatively yet. But finally, it looks like, you know, maybe we'll have something uh, come out of the House Judiciary Committee and start to have a floor debate on it within the coming weeks. The uh, Biden budget actually has a provision for, I think, $150 million to help uh, illegal aliens fight deportation orders. So so we're actually going to be hitting the American taxpayer up to help illegal aliens fight their deportation proceedings. This is the kind of thing that that should enrage people, but it just doesn't get over the radar screen in the media. It's it's just not on the list of things the media wants to talk about. It's really quite it's really quite comical, too, because you'll hear, you know, especially the Freedom Caucus type uh, Republicans in the House, uh, you know, they'll get accused by the media of, oh, or we and by the Biden administration of, oh, well, you want to defund border security because you want to take away some of this funding that the, that the Biden administration is asking for in the next in the next fiscal year. Well, no, that's not true, because, again, as you mentioned, look at where the funding is going towards. The funding is going towards uh, making sure that illegal aliens have access to taxpayer paid attorneys, to taxpayer services, uh, and and also to help process them faster. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about for the Biden administration. Right now, they want to cover up what's happening on the border without actually changing what's actually happening on the border. You know, they want to get rid of these images of mass groups of thousands of people rushing the border and try to create a more orderly process so that you don't have those television images and the whole border crisis just falls into the background. Uh, Well, the best way to do that is to add more Border Patrol agents on the ground, more asylum officers who can just simply process these people faster and quieter. So they won't be at the border. They'll be in the country, which isn't really what most people have in mind when they talk about (laughs) border security. There's a recurring argument. Exactly. For years now, we've had this this argument that never goes away about whether or not the people who are rushing the border are responding to incentives, like mm-hmm. are signals important to them. And when you bring that topic up and you say, if we're going to have amnesty or if we're going to have these giant funded programs, then they have an incentive to hit the border. They have no reason not to. They see it as, as zero cost. But then when there are measures taken, even when sterner measures are talked about, we see the border pressure mm-hmm. decrease, fewer people come at it. And yet we're still told uh, – when President Biden proposes an amnesty or he wants these processing assistance, uh, they say this won't have any effect on uh, on, on the border. Don't worry. It's, this is not going to make more people come here. But it obviously does. It does. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, what are they coming for? Um, I, yeah, I think some of them are definitely coming here to take care of some of the public services. That's that's a perk. But what they really want is they want to be able to live in the United States and they want to be able to work in the United States. And right now they are allowed to do that under the current policies of this administration. And that's why something like Remain in Mexico and E-Verify, those two things combined, are such powerful tools because then the people that are allowed into the country, uh, if, if they are the, the people that get into the country and try to claim asylum, we say, okay, well, you're not going to get released into the U.S. with a work permit instead you're going to have to go wait in Mexico. And those that are able to slip away past Border Patrol, we're talking about the million gotaways or so from the last year and a half, those folks won't be able to legally, legally obtain work because we've got a mandatory verify requirement in place. So those two things right there are going to take away that incentive of people being able to come stay and work here. Uh, And if you get rid of that incentive, a lot lot fewer people will come. And there's a big difference between having a generous immigration policy and having out-of-control illegal immigration. And one of the big differences is that we don't know who the illegal immigrants are. And that's a security issue. It really should be. We know there's a lot of gang activity going on. We know there's drug smuggling going on. There are increasingly large populations of of odd uh, people, people from Africa, people from China, popping up in little spurts across the border. Who are they? What are they doing here? We don't know because you know we're, we're not processing them. We don't have a rational system. It's just anybody who gets across the border is home free. And that that seems like a security issue that's going to really come back to haunt us in the years to come. 
Yeah, yeah, it really is. You know, you've got people crossing, and, and those are the ones that are getting apprehended, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago. You know, you've got more than a million gotaways since the Biden administration has taken over the White House. So, you know, we don't know anything about those folks. The only things that we know about are the ones that Border Patrol actually app- apprehends. But still, it's not just within legal immigra- or illegal immigration. It's, it's within our legal immigration system, too. I mean, we've got such a bloated system right now where we're bringing in more than a million people every single year. And especially combined with a border crisis, it's impossible to vet all these people. You just think about the bicycle path terrorist in New York City a couple of years ago. He came in legally through the visa lottery. So these are all we, the whole system, I think, needs to be reevaluated and rethought out. Make sure that it benefits all Americans. An excellent point. No system can withstand infinite pressure, and we have to start relieving some of the pressure. Chris Shemelinski, Vice President at Numbers USA, thank you for joining us. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward from Breitbart News. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. The pandemic is just one factor that forced companies to rethink the way they conduct business. In addition to remote employees, companies are uploading more data to the cloud and workers are using a wide variety of apps and devices. As a result, businesses are more susceptible to security breaches than ever before. For 10 years, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud has helped businesses improve security and minimize vulnerability. Security continues to be a top concern for businesses. According to JumpCloud Vice President Eric Brown, organizations need to reconsider their approach. Identity is the new center of IT and the foundation around which all IT infrastructure should be built. That's where we at JumpCloud come in. We help companies and people make work happen with secure, frictionless access to the apps and data they need with an open directory platform designed for identity transformation. To learn how JumpCloud can help your business, visit JumpCloud.com. Vitamin B12 is important for supporting not only our metabolism, but also our energy levels. Our brain and our nerves need certain vitamins like B12 in order to function properly. Even if you're eating all the healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and getting you know great sources of protein, it's sometimes the case that you can become deficient in one or more nutrient, and that's where supplements can be helpful. So if you want to support your B12 levels, Jaro's Methyl B12 is a great supplement to consider to optimize your B12 levels. This type of B12 is recognized by the body, so it's delivered to your cells more efficiently. It's also been shown that it is a great way to make sure that you're getting a highly absorbed form of vitamin B12 and one that's gonna be retained better than other types of B12. You can learn more at jaro.com. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car, killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. When you're behind the wheel, put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year. Remember, there is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? The way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who who got got his first first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries. I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hungered in America. 
Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans' organization has provided more real-time Ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at pva.org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor at Breitbart News. The 21st century is becoming a battleground between authoritarianism and capitalism, and one front in that war is the development of artificial intelligence. You've probably seen that there are now AI programs you can talk to and they'll answer questions. Well, China wants to say in developing this technology, and China believes that AI should be socialist in character. It should be willing to answer questions from a socialist perspective so the capitalists don't dominate the field. So the cyberspace field of this struggle is very hot indeed. Here with us to talk about it is Dr. Rainer Zeitelman, a much sought after guest speaker across Asia, the United States, Latin America, and Europe, and author of the book In Defense of Capitalism. Welcome to the show, sir. Hello. This is a fascinating uh, topic for me. I've studied artificial intelligence a great deal as it developed, and I'm aware of China's input into AI development. And they are saying that they can't let us be the dominant power in AI because they want it to answer as a socialist would. They want it to explain and glorify socialism. And they raise an interesting point that the people who program artificial intelligence will shape its answers. Should we let China into this discussion? No, of course, it's a danger, and it's especially a danger because what happens in China now, they had for some decades a lot of progress because they introduced private property and the direction was in more and more free market. But since a couple of years with Xi Jinping, they go back to more state, more state, and this is a very dangerous development. And this happens not only in China, it happens also here in Europe, it happens in the United States, it happens in Latin America, everywhere. The uh, interesting thing about our artificial intelligence program, ChatGPT, is that some researchers tested it, and they found that if you ask it questions in Chinese, the answers can be different. And in some cases, that's because they're shaped by Chinese media feeding into the AI program. I ha uh, to be honest, I haven't heard about this, but it's, it doesn't come to a surprise for me because they use everything as a political instrument. And, that's, and their data is all politicized. Everything on the Chinese Internet is politically controlled. So a neutral AI program reading Chinese data is going to become biased just by imbibing it. It, it seems like a real problem. Yes, of course. I, I, I agree. To, to be honest, I'm not so deep in this stuff, but let's speak about uh, capitalism, what is, uh, what is my topic and the problems now that we have, that everywhere in the world there's an attack on capitalism. And this is not only in China, it also happens here in Europe and the United States. I, I don't know whether you've seen the last index of economic freedom from the Heritage Foundation. It was published a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, this is a ranking how economically free are countries all over the world. At the top, you see countries like Switzerland, for example, or uh, Singapore at the end, Cuba, uh, North Korea, and Venezuela. And for the United States, it's the worst ranking ever since they started in 1995. And today, even 16 European countries are more economically free than the United States, 16. And this doesn't mean that we are economically free here in Europe. Of course not. 
but this means that there's something going in a totally wrong direction. It seems ironic that capitalism is under attack in so many countries that have benefited so much from it. A generation that enjoys unimaginable prosperity thanks to capitalism has been raised to question, challenge, attack it, and to declare it inferior and to believe that socialism is better. Absolutely. Uh, you remember, it's now like 30 years ago, we had a totally different time. It was with Ron Reagan, Maggie Thatcher, even Deng Xiaoping in China, everywhere people saw that socialism failed and it failed time and again. In 100 years, there were 25 different socialist experiments and they failed without any exception. Now, people don't know it, especially young people, they, because they don't hear about it at school. And this is the reason why I wrote my book, in defense of capitalism, uh, I, I can tell you an example. Um, there was, in the end of the 50s, the so-called Great Leap Forward in China, where 45 million people died. 45 million people died. And I, I have lectures, as you mentioned, everywhere in South America, in Asia, in Europe, in the United States. And whether I speak to 20 people, to 200 or to 2,000, I ask always, have you heard about this at school? About or at the university, about Mao's great leap forward where 45 million people died. They haven't heard about it at school. This is the real problem. And they compare utopia, socialist utopia with reality. That this is so fair, it's as if I would compare your real life marriage with a romantic love novel. It's not fair. The tip of the spear in this assault on capitalism is surely environmentalism and climate change. That is the entree, I think, to where many young people are taught to despise or hate capitalism or think it's inferior because we're told that capitalism has to go if we're going to protect the environment and rein in climate change. Absolutely. This is, and, but it's only a pretext because this is something that I show in my book, Environmental Problems were in the planned economy worse than in capitalism. You, know, you see, I live in Germany. You hear it with my accent. And we have here one country, Germany, but it was East Socialist West Capitalist. And the same country, the same culture, the same people, the same history, only different economic systems. Environmental problems were much, much bigger in East Germany. For example, CO2 emissions, where everyone talks about, were three times higher in East Germany, adjusted to GDP, as they were in West Germany. And there were nowhere more environmental problems than in the Soviet Union. So if people tell you we have to do something against climate change and we have to introduce a planned economy, this is crazy because planned economy never solved any problem in the last 100 years. They caused a lot of problems. And so it's stupid to think that uh, a planned economy will solve any environmental problem. For, I think it's for them it's only a pretext in their fight against capitalism. They hate capitalism, and now they have a new topic, and this is uh, this climate change and environment. Well, the planned economy is making the energy situation worse. Germany, I believe, is about to shut down its nuclear reactors. Uh, yes, Germany is a perfect example. You know, there was four years ago an article in Wall Street Journal and the headline was the dumbest energy policy in the world. This was about Germany, and it's absolutely true. First, we phased out nuclear power plants. Then we started to phase out coal power plants. Then we forbid fracking. Then we, now we, we import fracking gas from the United States. And it, it's crazy. A planned economy never worked, and we can see it here in Germany every day. And I think Joe Biden wants to do the same now for the United States. I think you're right, and I, I find that a very depressing prospect. I wish people would understand better that capitalism is the only real answer to authoritarianism in all of its forms. Dr. Rainer Zeitelman, sought-after guest speaker and author of the book In Defense of Capitalism. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm John Hayward, your guest host. Thank you very much for joining us all on this hour of The Alan Nathan Show. The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.